This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. The 2024 presidential election continues to be perilously close between Donald Trump, the fascist ex-president, who's been found guilty of crimes and is indicted for many other ones, and Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential incumbent. But the close race that is happening right now is actually a function of a much larger problem that has existed for many years in which neither party has been able to gain the advantage over the other one. Since the 1964 presidential election between Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater, no political party has gotten 60% of the national popular vote. And so because of that, I wanted to bring in a guest today who has studied politics for a long time and has been involved in politics in a variety of ways, particularly from the labor movement. And we're joined today by Mike Pethorzer. He is the former political director for the AFL-CIO union, and he's also the author of a newsletter called Weekend Reading, which we'll discuss later, and we'll be talking about some of his articles today. So thanks for being here, Mike. Sure. Glad to be here. All right. Well, so before we get too far into discussing some of your work with uh, Weekend Reading, let's maybe talk about briefly what it is for those who have not seen it yet. Sure. So the idea of it really started in the wake of Donald Trump's victory as a way for those of us who were political practitioners to try to understand what had happened and how to prevent, how to make sure that he lost in 2020. And over the course of several years, it grew among the, the political practitioners. And when I retired from the FLCIO at the end of last year, I decided to make it available to all. And what I try to do there is bring a very different perspective than I've seen elsewhere of understanding how politics works, the moment we're in, but most importantly, the the proper way to understand threat of fascism in this country and what we have to do to push back against that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the moment that you chose to start writing it, 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 I think there were a lot of people that were extremely surprised that Donald Trump was able to win in 2016 on the Democratic side of the aisle or the, the center to left, generally speaking. And I guess from your perspective, they ought to have seen this coming better. Well, I think those of us who were let really very involved, understood how close the election really was, that all of the sort of models, the forecasting models that were out there saying that it was between two to one for Clinton to 90, 10 for Clinton, really had no idea what was going on in the country and reflected really just not having a handle on what was going on in the Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And those of us who were really very involved understood there's going to be razor thin. And I think for the sort of broader public, and this is something that has sort of stuck in the sort of narrative about Trump winning that's got it really upside down, is that if the Republicans had nominated anyone but Trump, then they would have won easily. They would have won the popular vote at the Electoral College and probably would be finishing up their second term, right? Trump is probably the most successful intra-party presidential politician we've had and the worst intra-party politician we've ever had. And he came as close to blowing a surefire Republican victory as you can without blowing it. But what was still the case was that he could have been beaten in terms just in a political practitioner level. And that's 
really what we had to get our head around and figure out how to win in 2020. Okay. And so just to be clear, you're, you, were you disputing or agreeing with the idea that another Republican would have won? No, I'm saying they would have easily. That, okay. that, that Trump was like such a, an unpopular candidate for them that he mm-hmm. almost lost an election they should have won going away. And that, and that there's a way in which, the to your beginning about being at the 50-yard line, I think Trump has created kind of the illusion that uh, Democrats have more support than they actually do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, oh, okay. Well, yeah, and okay. now one of the, I guess, there, some some of the ideas behind that. Let's maybe explore some of your ideas behind that. So, yeah. with 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 regard to Trump being kind of a, a weaker Republican candidate, so one of those, obviously, for Republicans generally in 2016, is just simply the fact that the Democrats had the White House for eight years and. There's always a, a strong appetite for or motivation for the out party to come out and vote after eight years of the other people in the in charge and some dissatisfaction by the, the occupant party. So that's part of it. But what else was it from your viewpoint that they were well positioned in 2016? Well, be in the context of the Electoral College being decisive. I think, and I think this is still something that's not really understood. Remember when Obama won in 2008, the uh, hit, which was obviously a victory that was driven by Bush's unpopularity, the collapse of the financial system, and so forth. It was still the case that places like Ohio were competitive, right? The way in which Obama's policies address the breakdown of the financial system, which was essentially leaving it to the Federal Reserve to supply liquidity through quantitative easing, essentially meant that there was no new investment in rural America for that entire time. And a lot of the sort of popular commentary talks about Democrats losing it with by extreme margins in rural areas simply because they're too woke or something. But in fact, these are places, many of those places were devastated while Obama was president and were not really getting any kind of attention. And so there's nothing unusual about people in that circumstance, even putting aside social issues, not wanting more of the same. In 2016, when Clinton was running, in there's there are various ways of classifying geographic areas, and if you a common one that divides it into six, from most rural to most urban, in all but the most rural, employment had recovered from the Great Recession, mostly by 2012, 2013, and there was still less employment in the most rural areas of the country in 2016, and. and yeah, and that just changed the electoral college math in a way that Democrats are barely able to get out from under right now. Mm-hmm. Speaking of sort of regional classifications, that's something you've been writing about recently, talking about how there is this uh, very common myth that has settled in in both media and among political practitioners that the Donald Trump has somehow made the Republican Party a populist party and that they are sort of the the, the party for the less economically uh, prosperous people. And uh, you've kind of tried to puncture that in a number of different ways. Let's uh, talk about what you're, you, you wrote a, a long piece about trying to uh, basically making the contention that the the different yeah the the idea that uh the congressional districts have been sort of flipped but it's maybe not completely false this idea but you you really unpacked it quite a bit so let's can you briefly summarize what your your sure point is sure that? right and i think in, there's one of the things that makes 
but this kind of unpacking a little challenging is because there's a difference between um, describing a set of people and saying that that description represents causality, right? What has happened since mm-hmm. 2008 is that mostly because of the sort of the MAGA first Tea Party, the MAGA reaction that really returned the country into its sectional alignment between sort of the red states in the South, the blue states in the North and West, consequentially means that Democrats now represent more prosperous people because they represent a more prosperous region of the country, right? And so it's not because prosperous people are going to Democrats and not prosperous people are going to Republicans. It's that the preponderance of prosperity is in one region and preponderance of sort of lower socioeconomic achievement is in a different region. And so the, the challenge is, though, that if the only way you can that the sort of media generally tries to understand what's going on in the country is through the prism of national polls, which make no geographic um, distinctions, right? You have an effect being treated as a cause, right? But to to go back, one of the places this sort of, I think, maps to what you're saying, where people look at Republicans being the party of non-college Americans and uh, Democrats being the party of college, right? In blue states, white non-college voters supported Biden at a higher level than white college voters did in red states, right? It really have to get your head around the idea that the first important division in the country is sort of where you live, right? Now, it's true in both places. Non-college voters are more Republican than college, but- We're talking about whites. Yeah, with whites, right. That, but that- that that doesn't explain what's happening in the country, right? Because you, and as I was saying, even with the rural area, Biden almost won rural blue America, which like no one would think, right? Because of the way we just generalize from national numbers, when in fact national numbers are just sort of tallying up what happened all over the country. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And in that such that the the core differences really are more about the uh, approach that the voters in these regions have, their epistemologies, if you will. And and you can really see that with when you look at the, the and, and you note this in, in, in your pieces about this, that when you look at the Republican operative class, the people who run the Republican Party, they are yeah, from all the same expensive elite schools the Josh Hawley's of the world, right. the J.D. Vance's and Peter Thiel's and even Donald Trump himself, right? And so it isn't about education itself. In, it, education of itself is not dispositive. And I think that a lot of that oversimplification has really kind of, it's it's made a lot of people on the left not understand how to respond to MAGA and sort of the rise of of neo-fascism. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. I also think that the that and, and I think that when you this is a thing something which you're in sort of how you were talking about Republican operatives and I think it's really important to understand, to not sort of anthropomorphize the parties like they are making a decision. There's a like a person making a decision. We're going to do this instead of that, right? The way politics works in America, because we only have two ballot lines, is that all of the organized interests in the country 
un- the big ones understand that the way to um, have access to the enormous resources the federal government has, the enormous power it has, is to advance candidates that will carry their agenda. And when people say, well, the Republicans took this turn here as if there was a Republican who changed their mind about the best tactic, they miss the fact that what happened was that a different faction of the Republican Party gained the upper hand and it's new people, right? Like all the the Ryans and the everyone, like they leave, they either lose outright or decide they can't stay, right? It's not like someone sitting in a DC headquarters saying, aha, we're going to look at this poll and say, well, we really need to be more fascist to win, right? It's the fascists taking over the party. And in the in terms of the House, right, it's really the white Christian nationalist faction that has that has hacked Congress, basically. One of the pieces I have shows how our Byzantine 18th century way of figuring stuff out really enables any sort of big interest that is sufficiently geographically clustered right now because of how gerrymandered and partisan sort the districts are, that you can basically ladder from 18% of the population nationally to control the House and the Republicans in the House. And it's because in red districts in the South, white evangelicals make up between 30 and 50 plus percent of all primary Republican primary voters. And to win a Republican primary on average, to defeat an incumbent over the last dozen years, only has taken 50,000 votes. Right? And the national media doesn't see it because they treat sort of the Congress as a kind of national constituent assembly because they're looking at polling. Well, the Republicans are this percent, this and this, right? But they don't get votes. Places get votes. And the right right Christian nationalism is extremely strong in enough places that they get to control the Republican caucus. And they spent the better part of Donald Trump's entire presidency kind of saying, oh, he's not that extreme, doesn't really believe this. He's not really a fascist. You guys are overreacting. There's no, this isn't racism. This isn't whatever. And he would come out with all these horrible statements and they would just excuse them and pretend that it was overreacting. So, yeah. So, but that said, it's also that I think... To, to your regional point in, with regard to the white evangelicals. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people also haven't realized that Southern white evangelicalism sort of colonized white Protestantism outside of the South, just through its sheer business prowess, whether it was Christian bookstores like Lifeway Christian Resources, which is owned by the Southern Baptist Convention, and they've got stores in every state. And they they just their their sheer power of organizing and entrepreneurship they just overwhelmed all the other baptist factions and kind of ate the lunch of of mainline protestantism to a large degree absolutely uh, yeah and so and, yeah go ahead no i was just saying and it's like really not recognized part two is that in sort of southern ohio southern indiana there's been significant migration so, which is another element in why those states went from kind of purplish um, to red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the southern parts of or rural, generally speaking. Um, yeah, uh, and that's that is true of Illinois as well. Uh, yeah. outside of the Chicago area. Sure. Um, uh, uh, yeah, but but I guess to a large degree, though. I do think that when you look at the responses of, of, let's say, left of center operatives to this stuff, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's about generally kind of have, wanting to have the same narrative in every place and this idea that we can, we can create the perfect message. And, and the reality is there is no perfect message. What there are is, per, is many messages and you have to, to, you have to tell, you have to relate what you want to what the people want. And to your your point about 
and we, we were talking about before we were recording this, that the, the two parties really haven't tried. tried. They're not They're trying not to trying. create. Oh, hold on. I hear an echo. The, the, the two parties are not trying to create policy platform and even a, a message or a coalition that, in, that includes a majority of Americans, seems like. Yeah, I think that I think that somewhere around the mid and something that was happening in other countries too, business interests, which had really been centered in the Republican Party, basically expanded and won the battle for the Democratic Party and forced labor out in the way it's been in a lot of other countries. And so there's no, no party that actually is advocating for working people. Right? There's no question that that Democrats have been better for working people economically than Republicans, but neither has actually, especially relatively recently, been at all concerned with their working lives. And that's a like complete change. Yeah. Well, and now to what degree though is that does labor have responsibility for that situation? Well, I think that 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 and it's a really important question. I think that to to get at it, I think that many people talk you talk about you people who often are very much feel as allies of the labor movement about sentences like, quote, the decline in union membership. And I think that when we do that, we miss the, that it, it sort of, it makes it sound like it's something that labor Inevitable. did to itself. Um, when in fact, right, since the 1940s, the business corporate community has been relentlessly attacking the ability of pe working people to act collectively in unions. And they've been very successful in, because there's been essentially a bipartisan um, consensus that has prevented uh, union organizing in each new part, each part of the economy as it expands, right? So they're, but in 1940s, General Motors was fully unionized. It's fully unionized today. But through a set of policies, right, you with right to work in the South, you create a context to have auto plants that aren't, or you do NAFTA so that you make it easier for foreign companies to take union market share. When we started having the service sector exploding, there were new barriers erected to make it more difficult to organize service workers. Right now, it's very difficult to organize gig workers, even though they want it because laws, regs, whatever, are trying to make them independent contractors, right? And so I think, yeah, labor... That's labor's job, but we shouldn't be blind to the billions of dollars that have been spent on power exercise to prevent people from joining unions, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, but this has been a thing that's been going on for a long time. I mean, I guess you could maybe say it kind of started with the so-called Atari Democrats of the 1970s. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, and, but it's, I don't know, I, I and of course I, I uh, am a bit of a, not, this is not my place to say any of these things, but I mean, the reality is that, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's tricky because I guess to some degree, the Democratic Party kind of welcomed these new people to come in and especially after the Nixon resignation and 70 and in the 74 election in 76, those, it, uh, I, so they liked it. They, they wanted this, these new members in, but fundamentally they kind of changed the Democratic Party from what it was. And it's been kind of the same to a large degree since then, but maybe, I don't know, is it is it changing? Are things changing in, in the present moment? What do you think? 
Well, I think that Biden has really been a break with that neoliberal democratic tradition so far. I think we don't know what's going to happen in the longer run, but I think it was really significant that he went to the UAW picket line. That's something that Obama never would have come close to, that Clinton never would have come close to, that Carter never would have come close to. And I think it it stems from the fact that there was this period, and there's still a lot of, of it, of, and this is what really sort of galls me about people who sort of talk about appealing to working class voters, is that that the these are the same people who are have tried and been pretty successful at trying to tell a story of America in which there are no class divisions, right? That weirdly, the only class division is over sort of gendered bathrooms and a sort of social vibe that has nothing to do with people's economic lives. And that that kind of, that's kind of the problem. Let's, can you clarify what you mean? Yeah. What I, so here's a clear way of, of thinking about it, right? Before um, the mid-70s, Right. You had sort of the consensus worldview was that unconstrained capitalism brings you the depression, horrible outcomes, but that what was called a sort of pluralism that that working for this for a democracy to function, for an economy to function well, you had to create institutions like unions that allowed people to act collectively to have at least some relative balance in power with the corporations and the most wealthy, right? And that's an idea that goes back to Jefferson, everything you can't, how can you have like democracy when people aren't political equals? And the sort of fix that came in the New Deal was that while each working person wouldn't have the power of a Carnegie, if you put them all together, you're sort of starting to get a balance and you have some guardrails on capitalism, right? And But it was very much understood that there were two classes. There's like an ownership class and a working class, and their interests were not the same. And that the role of government was to make sure that that contest happened in a balanced, fair way. You get what you call the Atari Democrats, you get the neoliberal, whatever you're going to call them, right? They decide that that's like that's so yesterday. And that, in fact, all we have to do is rely on the market and everybody's going to have better, more prosperous lives and, and all of that, right? And so now there are not two sides anymore. There's just private-public partnerships, and the era of big government is over, and so forth. And so at that point, right, you have what Piketty and others sort of call a, a an elite duopoly of parties, right? Both are parties of different factions of the of the powerful. You have the Republicans putting aside the in the white Christian nationalists, they're the party of the extractive industries, of a set of industries that have worked to keep that region a low-wage economy. Democrats are captured by the tech and finance and knowledge economy, right? And they've created, that's part why the two areas are so different, right? They have a different theory of everything, but they're both believe that the market is the best way to do things and like and really want to avoid the idea of class war. Uh-huh. Okay, and then now you mentioned uh the idea of uh, so where where does gender and race fit into that in, in this framework this divisions you're talking about here? Well, that they they're I think in a fundamental way I think that the 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 through line for what's red America from the founding was the an idea of a kind of theocratic state right? that the purpose of the government is to 
make sure that people follow an already revealed law, right? And that and that, that law has a very clear cut social hierarchy. Right? That they know their place, yeah. Right. And then you have a more like classically sort of liberal blue states where people don't think there's a revealed truth already and are willing to try to have systems to get to the best place by working it out together. And so that's obviously going to be much more conducive to gender equality, racial equality, and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, it, yeah, and I think one of the other things, though, that the neoliberals did is that they that they de-linked the struggle for justice such that that basically they wanted to remove what Martin Luther King and, and a, a bunch of other people, Bayard Rustin and others yeah. like him, understood, which was that this is all this is a collective struggle here that things may not impact one set of people the same way. Right. But if you don't support their struggle, then you're then you won't win the thing that you want. And the neoliberals kind of broke that and basically tried to and and tried to get people to focus only on whatever particular one they were interested in. And, right. and and that's and that's kind of how the 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 Democratic Party became broken and a non-majoritarian, I would say. Right. No, I think that it was a switch from parties that were fairly about advancing their bases, aspirations, and uh, hopes to sort of two sort of consumer parties where each sort of was saying, well, here are the reasons to vote for me and here are the reasons to vote for me, but not actually, which is antithetical in a way to real democracy because you only have real democracy when people are engaged in a practical, functional way more than every two years when they get to choose between the same two choices. And then really yeah. have no handle on it in between. And well, and also, then sorry, also to that they get something that is more than just semiotic. In other words, that that having the symbology of your preferred group as sort of in people's faces, that actually doesn't really do very much for you. So, like the, the white Christian nationalism doesn't actually help the lives of the Republican voters who, who want it. And then, but, but by the same token, it also doesn't really help. It doesn't really help black Americans to have the CEOs be black of these corporations. And then they exploit the workers just the same. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a really important point is, and that's, I think, sort of the sort of genius of neoliberalism is by really insisting that we, everybody only has their individual interest rather than that there's any kind of collective interest or responsibility to a collective, right? You essentially split within racial groups or gender groups, or you're, you're basically what you just said. It's like the for people who don't have access to pre-K or decent education, knowing that that there are black CEOs is of limited value. Yeah, well, and it also the other thing about that the the neoliberal bargain, if you will, was that yes, it did bring some more educated, higher income workers into the Democratic coalition, but what it also did is that it made it easier for the much larger group of blue collar workers of all races to leave because that for them for for many of these people like they were motivated by like they were christian fundamentalists and and you see that and you you first saw that with with white blue collar workers but now you're starting to see that with evangelical hispanics and you're starting to see that with black evangelicals as well that they're not, and they say this when when people, and I think focus groups are of very limited value, but nonetheless, yeah. 
the idea some of some you do hear people say i don't see a difference between the parties for me and some of that is a failure of democrats people letting people know that biden's very pro union and he did all these things that's a, that is a, a, a democratic sort of uh infrastructure of communication problem but yeah. it's also that that again that they the fact that people would even think this at all uh, it shows that the the Republican Party has identified what for them these individuals is their they view as their primary identity, and 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 basically they've that's why that is why they constantly talking about social controversies and whatnot. Like there's this myth that the Democratic Party only talks about racism or gender equality or transgender participation in society. None of that's true. But the Republicans want you to believe that. And Democrats, I don't feel like they understand that they think that people will just figure it out, that they don't have to be told what's actually happening, that they'll just, the marketplace of ideas, the good ideas will win. And it just, it seems kind of naive, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, well, first of all, I think what, what you, one thing that I want to pull up is it's going to go there anyway, but I think it's really important is that, is when you talked about identity. And I think that almost all the discussion about the appeal of the parties and politics and messages and everything miss the fact that the most powerful way to realign the electorate to, to win elections is when people feel that their identity is fundamental and core to one of the other parties or candidates, right? That people aren't out there sort of looking at sort of side by side of where the candidates or parties are on issues, whatever, when they think that this is the party, if you're a white, you're evangelical, right? The reason they're 80 plus percent for Republicans is because Republicans tap into their white Christian nationalist identity. And so for people like who, for whom identity is is politically salient, right, they're not going to say, but maybe Democrats are good on this issue or what if they don't, you don't think past that. And what, and so identity when people like you, people you feel are like you are all one party or the other, that's alignment, right? And the right now, the very odd thing in terms of the way people talk about working class voters or whatever, is that most of the electorate actually is voting on one or other identity. Either their identity is MAGA or it's anti-MAGA. And and that that's really got its grip on almost over 85% of the electorate, which is just never going to switch sides because it's not about either side's issue suite. It's people like me are or are not relevant. Yeah. Yeah. And and I have... The other thing, I was, oh, go ahead. No, you can go no I was just going to say, I think one thing that like gets like left out of this kind of conversation is let's not forget that in the 17 blue state that Biden, Clinton, and Obama 12 won by two dozen points. And that in those states, you have functioning Demo capital D Democratic governors that have actually been making life better for people over a period of time. The sort of the characterization of a dysfunctional party that can't like do anything right really has to do with this national contest, right? And the national party. And one of the reasons why it is so uh, dysfunctional is that in those 17 states, blue wins by two dozen points. In the 27 red states, Trump won by more than a dozen points twice, and so did Romney, right? And they're two different types of politics. And there's like no, not a middle ground that you could be smart in. Hmm. Well, okay. So, but, so then how can 
people who want to have more a politics that are is for working people how can they succeed in that type of environment what do you what do you think well i, I think that it's going to depend on work, working people rising again like we did in the 30s and before and i think what we're seeing this summer and fall with RCPS, WGA, UAW, is at least finally a stirring uh, of that. You know, I was looking this morning for something I was writing that in 1974, there were more strikes than there were in the last 25 years, right? That, that like the world was just very different and working people had very different sense of agency and were more engaged in getting a better life for themselves than they have been in quite a while. Yeah. Well, and I, and I, and it's something that is tricky though, because I, the other reason why Republicans have created kind of a, I mean, the, the Republican party is a, identity politics party and it was built that way by the 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 goldwaterites and the reaganites they 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 re rebuilt the party into being that based on on white christian rural identity yeah and it was effective not just at getting the south but it's also effective as a way of preventing worker uprisings and things like that because essentially what it is it's a it's a divide and conquer right a hundred percent right it's like right that in this period right where the and this is essential and i, I have a lot of respect for michael Kazin, who you had on but i think there's like a really we have to take a hard look that that the democratic party from jackson on could be called the party of white working people. But throughout that period in the Confederate states, in the Southern states, those the people so named saw themselves just as white, right? Not when it push came to shove, their white identity was more important to them than their working class identity. And that the sort of the quote loss of white working class for the Democratic Party really happened in the 40s in the in the South. Right? And most people who like try to tell that story are uh, don't understand that Democrats continue to have majorities of the members of Congress for those states for quite a bit longer because yeah. those Democrats in the House and Senate they were electing were fighting against all the working class unions and working class policies that would allow there to be multiracial unions in the South. Mm -hmm. Well, so then it, it, it I mean, because that is ultimately, I mean, you could argue that, that those are the two issues that the, a more, let's say, left leaning Democratic Party faced is that one trying to include black americans in the party and then also trying to cleave off allow the creation of a of white christian nationalism and and not do anything in response to that i mean and even now like i i that when you look at the democratic party leadership they don't really talk about white christian nationalism at all and 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 say that it's bad and say that it's a manipulation. And, 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 and so because of that, because there is literally no contravailing message to say that if you're a, if you believe the Bible is literally true, you're not going to be imprisoned if Joe Biden gets reelected. You're not going to be imprisoned if Bernie Sanders somehow became the president. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. And, and in what you'll 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 get better health care, you'll get more worker protections and things like that. Like they just it's just like they I feel like they pretend that they don't have to. If we don't talk about it, then it will go away. Uh, and they've just had this this naive approach to the Christian nationalism. And now because they've ignored it for so long and not tried to 
talk about just how manipulative it is. Now it's starting to ensnare Hispanic evangelicals and, and some Black evangelicals as well. Yeah. I mean, I think the it's, it's interesting. It's just part of that I really agree with part of it. I think as long as you have a information ecosystem like Fox and all the other right-wing media that has already, that, that really it's commercial, as you probably under, were there, like commercial model, they're making money selling sort of white grievance stories, right? Sure. And stories about, that is the white Christian nationalist worldview. And it's not like there's a billionaire or something that's like creating this propaganda thing. It, it, it makes money, right? And so they're doing it. And I frankly don't think that there's a way for Democrats to assure people that, no, we're really not going to take your Christmas away. Uh, <laughs> I think that like that, that, that battle's gone, right? And because of what you're saying is it's just really a powerful way to divide people. Right. And and it's working. I fault much more the mainstream media for pretending that white Christian nationalism isn't a threat to the country uh, for such a long time. And even now it has a tough time saying the words white Christian nationalism. Right? That's really what's problematic. And I think that's what makes the presidential election as close as it is, or the country as close as it appears to be over Trump, is the equivocation about how much of a fascist, how much he's really going to do the things he says he's going to do. And, I mean, you know, the too much of the media is just about sort of telling people not to take what they, he says seriously. Uh, yeah, they certainly do that. But at the same time, they've always been this way. So yeah, oh yeah, it no, seems that's like a, that the, the left should yeah. be investing a lot more in media than they do. I mean, like to me, as somebody who created multiple media organizations on the right, I can tell you it is so easy to get people on the right to be interested in starting up some new media business. Whereas on the left, there is this idea that oh well, we can put a we got an interview on NPR the other day. Or we, we got a, <laughs> right. a, a story, a, ABC News to do a profile of us, or sixty yeah, minutes no, did a nuts. story about yeah. us. And it's 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 incredibly naive, and they don't and they don't understand. Most people, especially in this internet age, most people don't see those stories. They they don't know right. about them. So you have to take the message to the people, but they don't want to. They don't seem to want to do it because it's beneath them. Well, I'm not quite sure that's completely fair because i know a lot of people who have tried to do it and failed i Mm -hmm. think from and there are some really good rigorous studies of like what happens and i think that one of the handicaps that those who've tried to do what you're saying on the not on the right is that the Mainstream media, the Times, the Journal, Washington Post, um, right, basically have the most lucrative audiences locked up, which means that there is like no one's really found the equivalent of a third of America that's a untapped, commercially available market for the left wants to like spend their time in the car listening to people rag on own the conservatives or something, right? It's very asymmetric, right? And and so yeah, I think it is it is both are true. There are many people on the left who are too condescending and self-disqualifying for the job. But I know a lot of people who are really serious and invested money, a lot of time and just can't find a market for it. It's really just asymmetric. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I don't disagree with that, but I mean, I would say even to the extent that the, the, like the web has built, has enabled some people to build pretty large audiences and yeah. on the left, 
And they don't share their audiences. They do not engage in cross promotions. They don't invite other people on their podcasts or invite them to write articles. It simply does not happen. Like they invite their personal friends to come on their show a hundred times or whatever. And then unless you're <laughs> their personal friend, you don't get invited. And so as a result, the ecosystem doesn't like, here's, here's the paradox is, and I can say this having been seen yeah. how things work on both sides, that the left is actually the left media ecosystem is far more capitalistic and far more dog eat dog than on the right. <laughs> the right does not practice capitalism in its own affairs and the left does. So like almost all the largest center to left media operations are owned by corporations. Right. Whereas, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and whereas on the, on the right, they will go and sink millions or tens of millions of dollars year after year into, into these organizations that they know will not ever be profitable, but they serve a valuable purpose. And so they continue to do that. And, but but in, in some cases, like the Daily Wire or talk radio, these things that were unprofitable for a number of years, eventually they, they, can, they get to the point where they are profitable and, and extremely so. And Fox News is another example of that. I mean, it was an enormous money loser for Rupert Murdoch for a long time. And then eventually it, the, uh, the audience finally found it um, and has been printing money ever since. Whereas, so I think there are people who want this stuff. It's just that everybody on the left gives up too soon. And I would say Air America is an example of that, that it was created if they had just stuck to it longer and not been so wasteful in their expenditures. They And you can see that with the hosts, like a number of the hosts who were there have been able to continue making a living and, and make do quite well for themselves because they kept going. Right. But remember that there's the, in terms of the, from the, the financing of all of that, right? Is that the other asymmetry is that for the Cokes, for Murda, for all of those people, there's a corporate bottom line that creating a movement to lower taxes and reduce regulation has an ROI, right? And there isn't that on the other side, right? There's no sort of what right, the left media like, I don't even have to say the sentence, right? A left media that's a Trojan horse for pro-billionaire policies, right? Right. It's That's the problem. Mm -hmm. and I'm, I um, feel awkward sort of defending. I'm not trying not to defend any particular people in this. I'm just trying to say that, mm -hmm. that what I think is important is that to understand that the problem isn't like finding people to do it better. It's that we're in a system that kind of that is the, that that's here, right? I mean, these are decisions that mostly Democratic presidents made to um, not renew the fairness doctrine, to do the the communications deregulation bill that has allowed the that allowed cross ownership in I and mean, all those things. Right? Didn't used to be the case are the case, and that's a ditch Democrats built, it, it dug for themselves. But it doesn't mean like we're just looking for somebody to come in and transcend that. I mean, it's a pretty deep ditch. Hmm. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's all true. And yet, you're, you, in your writing, you have talked quite a bit about how things are not inevitable and Trump's not. Right. Going to to he's not inevitable in, in terms of coming back and and you've been particularly notable in pushing back against people panicking about Joe Biden's polling numbers. You you, you call it mad poll disease. What what right. is what does that term mean for people who? What what I mean is that I can't imagine there's much very many people who are listening to this podcast and don't know about all the horse race polling that's been out there and the big splash that the New York Times created a, a couple months ago now with polls showing Trump ahead in a number of battleground states. The, the point that what I think mad poll disease is, is that there are two things that we know about the presidential election. 
One is that it's going to come down to, uh, as it has in 2020 and 2016, less than a percentage point difference in five to six states that we know. We know which states they are. We know it's going to be that close. And we know that polling can't really tell us anything valuable beyond that. But the but when you think that polling can, you panic about it in an unconstructive way because you're basically thinking, oh my God, there is a knowable outcome there and we're screwed, right? When in a democracy without polling right now, we wouldn't be talking about how old Biden is. We'd be talking about Trump's fascist agenda and getting everybody we know to make sure they should go out and vote against him, right? It's the wrong conversation to be having. And in the last couple of elections, right, in the midterms, the 538, which does a better job of something which really can't be done perfectly. But if you've been following it, when they started their Senate model in June, they said Republicans had a 60-40 chance of taking Senate. But in, after the J6 hearings in Dobbs, they said Democrats had a 60-40 chance of holding the Senate. On election day, they said Republicans again had a 60-40 chance of holding, flipping the Senate. Of the five races that mattered most, they got three wrong. You literally would have been smarter not ever going to look at any of the forecasting and just knowing what everyone knew is it was going to come down to those states, right? And just go out and try to win, right? That any, all of these races are within the margin of error. And when they're there, they're in the margin of our effort. And that's what mad pole disease is. It's paralyzing. It's your, it, it keeps you away from being a small D democratic citizen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and it is interesting that the the, uh, the Republican Party and the right wing media ecosystem kind of they they became completely disregarding of polls beginning in 2012 or so, and they've been that way ever since. That they really say, well, it doesn't it shows us behind, but that's fake, and that's that's not true. But they basically have said we don't believe that. We're just going to continue to push forward and and do, you know, and can't. Right. Hard. And then we've had like 200 years plus of successful elections without having polling a year out. Right. I mean, like democracies mm -hmm. do actually can function without the media putting its central attention on trying to be the first to sort of say something smart about who's going to win. Yeah. Well, now, is this kind of do you think this is an example of what what decision theorists call analysis paralysis on the part of people on the left of center. Is that what this is really? Um, I mean, uh, maybe for some, but it, it's more that as I was saying that the problem is that anybody who wants to think about like the basic, is America going to continue as a not fascist country in terms of like someone, a media organization talking to 1500 people to tell you something, right? That's just crazy, right? The, right, right. Like if you believe that it's like that horrible for Trump to win again, that's all that matters. And, but the thing to be clear is in what I'm saying, is not for the same reason Republicans say that, right? Republicans were saying that because they didn't like the poll numbers, right? And they were getting in the way of the story they wanted to tell. In 2020, if you remember, the, the polling and media had Biden headed to a really big victory. And in October, I was writing and weekend reading, uh, the polls are wrong. Right, it's going to be as close as it was, right? And right, it's like the polling. We we are such a divided country, and those states are so on the fifty yard line that 
to just keep going back over and over again and take taking their temperature again and again, right, makes it seem more fluid than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so for uh there's no as you as you said, there's no magic wand for all these things. But I mean, so what are what are the things you think Biden should be doing? Because uh, the the polls are right that that he has the potential to lose. Oh um, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. We all know that, right? That's that's yeah, a, that's yeah. the challenge of our life, right? And, yeah, right. We don't need to know. So what would, I'm saying, what would you say that he should do to not lose? Well, I don't know what he should do. I know that what we should do is in whatever roles we have, make sure that we understand what the threat is and that that's our central charge as citizens of this country to make sure that Trump isn't reelect, isn't elected again. Mm-hmm. Well, and what if people feel like that? I mean, like, and, and you, and maybe we can end here with yeah. This there, there's been a lot of discussion with in in the world of economics about what the, some people call a, a vibes recession in in regards to polling that when people are asked about the state of the economy they think that it's almost depression level bad for many people and the response and you know and and the economic indicators do not really show that and you know to a certain extent I think or to a pretty large extent I think this is the product of right-wing media having completely sort of uh, removed Republicans from all rationality when it comes to questions about the economy. So in other words, when a Democrat is the president, the Republican respondents are now seemingly for the past several years, maybe perhaps for the long-term trend, they're going to say it's a depression just because a Democrat is the president. Right. And and then when Trump was the president, they even during the worst parts of the pandemic, they said the economy was great and the prospects were amazing. And, and it was like 70% of them, even even at the very worst shutdowns and, and, and whatnot, they said it was fantastic. So, I mean, to, uh, what's your take on if the, on this whole vibes session? Yeah, stuff? so I think that, the, what first what you're describing about Republicans and Trump, and no matter how about the economy as he's doing great, is what I was saying before about identity, right? Once you see yourself as being on Team Trump or Team Red, right, that's the power of like of identity and identification, right? And it like that that's the way human beings work, right? The on the other side, though, I think that there's that the that the indicator, economic indicators, that everyone feels that people are not are like delusional for not realizing what a good economy it is, just don't actually indicate that don't really reflect how people experience their lives. There was a time when something like GDP growth was a pretty good heuristic for how people were feeling because as the economy grew, prosperity was fairly shared, right? But when it goes from rising tide, lifting all boats, GDP indicator, yep, that's a good thing. When it's mostly lifting yachts, right? Why should people feel any better? And I think there's a way in which the people in the sort of media class really don't understand what rising prices do to people. And the idea that someone who is like daily stressed by wondering by the uncertainty of whether in this season they can afford the, uh, afford the toy their kid wants because they don't know whether they're going to have rents going to go up in January or something like that. Like they're not, like whoopee, inflation isn't going up by as much as it was before, right? Whereas mm-hmm. sort of in the sort of media class, it's oh well, he's getting inflation under control. Prices are still going up, right? They're not, and it's that disconnect. I think it's a real disconnect about how people really are experiencing the economy and what the indicators economists say should matter. 
And I think to the sort of larger point, since 2000, in almost every institution, people just have less confidence. People feel the society's broken. And then, which everybody sees in polling, and then everyone's surprised about why this or that leader isn't popular. It, it, people are not happy. And that's being reflected in these polls. Yeah. So I guess what can what can Biden or other people on the left do in response to that? Or what should they do, do you think? I don't know that, that uh, I think that the in terms of our conversation about Trump and MAGA, white Christian nationalists and all of that, that just has to be the thing that unifies people. And I don't have any particular advice for what Democrats should do to make themselves more popular. I think that's they really, um, they've kind of put themselves in a position that makes it really hard for that to ever sort of succeed. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so then it sounds like they need to change their policies in your view then to be more responsive. Okay. All right. Well, appreciate uh, you joining the oh, show yeah. today, Mike. Yeah. So if people, what's the, what are the best ways for people to, to keep up with? Uh, which... But basically my Substack weekend reading. Okay. So weekendreading.net yeah. for uh, everybody to check that out. And are you on any of the social media uh, places? That yeah, I am, but mostly to post that. So if you're getting the Substack, you're getting that. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Take care. All right. So that is the program for today. I appreciate everybody for joining us for the conversation. And you can always get more if you go to theoryofchange.show, where you can get the video, audio, and transcript of all the episodes. And if you are a paid subscribing member, thank you very much. And you have complete unlimited access. Some of the episodes in order to keep the show sustainable are not available to the general public. So I appreciate everybody who is supporting the show in that way. And please do tell your friends or family about this program as well. I appreciate that as well. All right, that'll do it for this one. And we'll see everybody next time.